You're listening to the Higher Ideas Podcast, where ideas grow. Connect on higherideas.net. Now here's your host, I. Hello, fellow human, and welcome back to the Higher Ideas Podcast. Today's episode is an ayahuasca episode, once again. Um, This episode will be of interest to anybody currently working with ayahuasca or hoping to work with ayahuasca. This episode will be breaking into the shaman, the the important figure that will be present in a quote unquote you know traditional ayahuasca experience. Um, now the shaman is uh, a figure that is often mentioned in a lot of ayahuasca reports and stories and documentaries. Uh, of course, the shaman tends to always be there when people come to South America and have their ayahuasca experience, whether they share their own story with you or it's a documentary investigating ayahuasca, they'll speak to a shaman, right? There'll always be a shaman there. But there isn't often, I haven't run into a lot of media that digs into what the shaman is, what the shaman is doing, what exactly are the roles that the shaman is playing in this multi-leveled experience that is a full ayahuasca you know, ceremony slash dieta experience. Um, and I think the reason for that lack of explanation about the shaman is that unless you've trained yourself, unless you are an apprentice or you have been working with shamans for a very long time and are very involved in this kind of um, world, it's really tough to know what they're doing because a lot of what the shaman is doing is subtle, is invisible. Um, But most people walk away with a sense that this person, this figure that was involved in their ayahuasca experience was important even though they can't describe exactly what the person did or why they were important, I feel like most people walk away feeling with that gut feeling of, wow, this person had to be there, and I'm glad that person was there. This is the shaman. So today I'm going to try to break into explaining what I understand so far on my own apprenticeship path here, working with a shaman now for over a year and a half. Um, I feel like I'm starting to get a sense of what a shaman is doing, what a shaman is there for. Now, before I get into this uh, topic, there is one sort of knot I'd like to untie, and that is around the word itself, shaman. Now, in every community out there, every community that discusses things, you know, be it uh, movie fans or video game players or, you know, book aficionados, you know, anytime you've got a community out there that joins together in forums and discusses things, um, there will be these sort of inner squabbles, these little never-ending arguments happening between the community uh, where there's one camp and there's another camp and there just can't seem to be an agreement between them, right? And it's the same with the ayahuasca community. Um, There is a, a sort of ongoing little squabble going on in the ayahuasca circles around the word shaman. Um, And it basically boils down to this. One camp says you can't call them shamans. They're not shamans because the word shaman is originally from Siberia, right? The spirit workers of Siberia were the ones originally called shamans. And in every other culture out there that has shamanic Um, has a shamanic element to their culture, they have a different name. So the argument is, you can't call ayahuasca shamans shamans because that's from another culture, it's disrespectful, right? What they're actually called locally is curanderos or uh, vegetalistas, 
um, curandero meaning healer, literally in Spanish, and vegetalista meaning uh, a plant person, right, a uh, plant worker. Now, that's one camp. I happen to be part of the other camp, which is, um, you know, it's fine to call them a shaman. And here's my argument, my view. Um, the word shaman, even though it's from Siberia, over many generations now of books, way back in the 60s and 70s with Terence McKenna and all these other writers about psychedelics, all these other anthropologists exploring shamanic culture all over the world, um, shaman just became the term for a spirit worker, a person who is working with a connection to spirit, whose discipline is all about increasing this awareness of the spiritual realm and encountering spiritual beings or spiritual energies and forging a relationship with this other realm. Uh, Terence McKenna himself described it in a really uh, important way for me that I really clung to, which is that when you're exploring these psychedelic realms or when you're exploring these spiritual realms, the right perspective to have is the same as a person leaving one continent back in the days of explorers, right? And reaching other lands and meeting other strange people and forging alliances and finding a way to interact with this entirely new culture of this entirely new world. And that's what a shaman is doing with the other realm. Instead of going to another continent, it's going to another dimension of reality, right? Where these spirit cultures and spirit beings apparently exist. Um, and that's a shaman, right? Um, we even say shamanism. You can speak about any shamanistic culture out there of any country, but to, to call what they're doing shamanism isn't incorrect. It's, it's the word. It's the word that we have all agreed upon just through language, through the natural evolution of communication, through all this media, as I described, these books that have been written generations ago, and all the way now into you know all this internet media. Shaman just has naturally become the term for any kind of, of spirit worker. And these ayahuasca curanderos here in South America, these ayahuasca vegetalistas who heal with plants, who heal with ayahuasca, um, they're not just giving you plants. They don't just know which plant will heal what thing and how to prescribe it and how to manage it. They are also connecting to the energies and the spirits of these things. There's a whole other level at work that's a huge part of the discipline of training to become a curandero or um, you know, a vegetalista. It's not just the physical material that you're working with. You're forging relationship with the spirits. That's shamanism. So it's not inaccurate to call them shamans. And it's not, in my view, disrespectful. And yes, you know, these people in the camp of don't call them shamans, that's not the right term, They'll point to the fact that uh, a lot of the curanderos, a lot of the vegetalistas down here in South America, if you call them a shaman, they may correct you and say, ah, I'm not a shaman, I'm a curandero. I'm not a shaman, I'm a vegetalista. But these people are living locally, right? They don't have usually this internet global scale awareness of, of the conversation. So it's only normal for them to correct it without understanding that, yeah, shaman isn't the local term but globally, it is a correct term. So it's kind of a pointless argument that I keep seeing popping up in, in Facebook and forums. And really, it's pointless. Uh, as long as you understand that the word is, is pointing to the right kind of sentiment for what you're trying to describe, 
to me, it makes no difference. I mean, the best example I can think of is like the difference between calling marijuana cannabis or calling marijuana marijuana. Now, marijuana is the name of a completely other plant. And back when they started prohibition, back when they started attacking marijuana, they labeled it marijuana incorrectly. It was actually cannabis. But uh, that's what stuck in the mind of society. Now, through all these generations, we've been calling it marijuana incorrectly. So a purist, uh, you know, you might even call them like a fanboy or a zealot of marijuana, would correct you and get all upset and say, no, it's cannabis. And you have to call it cannabis or else you're disrespecting the plant. Now, that kind of attitude, in my view, is kind of egotistical. It's trying to control people into adopting your view, right? But if you feel that saying cannabis is more respectful to the plant, go ahead and call it cannabis. But when you start to, to try and force everybody else to join that camp um, and trying to, to paint people as disrespectful for not doing it your way, that's manipulation. That's childish, pointless attempts at controlling language which evolves on its own and it's resisting the natural flow of the language. Everybody knows that marijuana is marijuana. They know what plant it's pointing to even though it's not the right name originally. Doesn't matter. Now it is. And um, fighting against that is, is kind of a lost battle, right? So this is the way I see it when it comes to shaman versus curandero uh, vegetalista. They're all correct. And the only camp fighting is the one trying to preserve the old original term and trying to establish it as the only accepted term. But that's a huge uphill battle you will never win. It's done. So let it go, right? So that's my view. Uh, so for the remainder of this, this episode and moving forward in the podcast, I will refer to curanderos and vegetalistas as shamans. Ayahuasca shamans, if you want to be more specific. They are shamanizing with ayahuasca. Okay, so... In talking about the responsibility, the role, uh, the position of a shaman in ayahuasca ceremony, there has to be a distinction made because there's actually two kinds of people you may be having sitting um, in charge of a, an ayahuasca ceremony that you're participating in. Hopefully you've got one of these two things. If you've got neither of them, it's a little bit more of a, a crapshoot. Um, it's a little bit less of a stable situation, but... When you go and drink in a group with ayahuasca, you will either have a shaman or many shamans sitting at the helm managing the ceremony, or you may have a facilitator. Now, both of these roles are the space holder role. That's, that's their main uh, responsibility, is to hold a space for the ceremony to happen. Now, describing what a space holder is doing is a little uh, difficult. Uh, because it is a lot to do with energy, it is a lot to do with presence, it is a lot to do with what that person projects. But um, the best analogy I can think about when trying to describe both a shaman and a facilitator uh, holding space is if you could imagine when you're in a ceremony together, it's as if everyone is sitting underneath a big tarp together, right? And this tarp is just laying on top of everybody. Now, when you've got no person um, of experience in charge, Everyone's sort of just exploring around under this tarp, under the weight of this tarp, right? Everyone's just blindly reaching around, trying to find their way. But if you've got a facilitator or a shaman in place, they act like a pole that lifts the tarp up like a tent. And they're at the center of the space, holding up the space, opening up the space, creating 
more of a, of a, of a uh, more room for things to happen, for, for clarity to happen, for, um, uh, they really create a space just by their presence. It's really hard to describe this kind of thing because it is so ethereal, but uh, the difference is there. You can see it uh, if you drink in many different uh, kinds of situations, you'll feel the difference. But yes, that's what they do. They're like a pole that holds up this tarp and creates a space for everybody underneath, right? Gives breathing space, makes room for things to happen. And they do that with their stability. They are the pole. They're not just holding a pole. They are the pole. It's, it's their presence. It's their, their experience with the medicine. It's the connection they forged um, through many, many times drinking and, and earning a certain confidence and a certain ability within that state of mind. Um, there is a certain amount of energy control that you start to develop. And so this is the role of the facilitator by their own stability, by their own experience, by their own sturdiness, by their own focus, their very presence creates a bigger moment, a more open moment, a vaster moment than would be possible if there wasn't one present. And this, this makes for an easier ceremony. This makes for a more stable ceremony. Um, now, it's not just about the energy, it's also about the sense that they inspire in the people. So much of everything around ayahuasca and ceremony and dietas and working with shamans and all that stuff, so much of it is both uh, psychological and spiritual energetic at the same time. So there's this double component to almost every factor you can describe. And it's no different here. Um, a person sitting at the head of a ceremony who has themselves had so many ayahuasca journeys and, and um, gained a confidence and a stability within that experience, they project a sense of calm, a sense of safety, a sense of stability and, and sturdiness and strength without even trying. It's not about flexing, it's not about looking impressive, it's got nothing to do with that and you can't fake it. You can try and pretend to be this super experienced person that's got everything on lockdown. But if it's not true, if it's not true, it'll come through just from your presence. And it's not the same. When a person truly is comfortable with the ayahuasca experience, is confident within the ayahuasca experience, just being around them gives you a sense of calm. You feel it. They don't have to say anything. They don't have to impress you. It's just this, this certainty that is in this person, that everything's going to be fine. I'm here. I got this on lockdown. I've been through enough. I know how to deal with anything that's going to come up for me or for anyone else, right? That kind of confidence inspires the whole group to feel safer. And that begins the ceremony in a much better way than if there was just nobody in charge, right? If it was just a bunch of people drinking together with no experience, uh, there's a fear in the air, right? And when you drink ayahuasca, everyone kind of becomes a little psychic. Everyone is kind of sensitive to everyone else's state of mind. So if you don't have that stable guardian in place, um, you know, things can go off kilter. Things start off already nervous, already unsure, already unsteady. So that's how they are like a tent pole. The shaman and the facilitator, the space holder, it's their presence that, that keeps everything from the very beginning on a good, stable track by inspiring everyone, even just psychologically. Um, but as I said, also energetically, they are, they are providing a stability energetically 
um, that sort of overwhelms, that overrides anyone with fear, anyone with anxiety sitting in the space. Um, they, they sit above all of that and keep it all stable. So the shaman and the, the facilitator ideally are like a rock, the dependable person that stays in control. Uh, and that comes from, you know, developing their sea legs. Now, here in South America, they call the uh, drunkenness that comes from the ayahuasca effect, they call it the mariación. And that's uh, a word um, connected to the sea, right? It's like being out to sea on a boat with the waves going up and down and getting seasickness. You know, people who are new to that experience will get sick, will get overwhelmed, will, will just want it to stop. But a person who's been out to sea a bunch of times, you know, these ayahuasca pirates as we are, the people drinking a lot, you get your sea legs and it doesn't affect you anymore. And, and that allows you to stay in control no matter how rough the sea gets because you're used to it. You've been through the storms um, and it doesn't, it doesn't reach you like, like a new person. So that's another reason to have um, this kind of person in a ceremony so that no matter how crazy things get for the new people, for the less experienced, for the people dealing with deep healing and, 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 and pulling up all this deep, overwhelming stuff, there is this you know, sea captain that can deal with any sharks and any giant squid that show up. Now, another role that both the shaman and facilitator will share is dose metering. Through experience, through observing how the medicine works in different kinds of people by serving it for a while or watching it be served for a long time, um, you get a sense of how much each person can handle. Now, when it comes to a shaman, they have an extra level in place there where um, they've got also the connection to spirit guiding them about how much this person needs. So there's another level of, um, of assessment there. But both the shaman and facilitator, just from pure experience on the physical level, from observing a person's behavior before ceremony, feeling out their energy, how nervous are they, what kind of, of sturdiness do they have? Are they kind of weak, you know? Um, and also on top of that, what kind of body do they have? Are they sick? Are they frail? Are they big and buff and solid? Um, there's all these factors that go into place in feeling out how much everybody should have. And uh, that, that will be a responsibility of a good facilitator or a good shaman. But overall, the, the important part of both of these roles is that you stay cool under pressure they can manage freakouts if they come up. Um, they're the guardian. They're the guardian watching over everyone's ceremony, making sure that everything goes as well as possible and dealing with problems before they get out of hands. Now, we're starting to get a little bit into what the shaman specifically does now, but there is one more thing that both the shaman and facilitator may do in a ceremony, and that is sing the medicine songs, uh, which are called Icaros. Uh, over here in South America. Um, now these medicine songs, when a shaman sings them, a shaman is injecting a significant power into the song as it launches out into the air. So a shaman is providing an extra level beyond just the song, which actually kind of activates the song, kind of makes it um, reach its full potential, right? These songs aren't just sung to be pretty, pretty sounds in the air. When a shaman is singing it, they're injecting an intention into it. And I've seen some very powerful moments happen, thanks to um, Maestro, who I'm working with here in Peru, Maestro Orlando. Maestro Orlando injecting his songs with his intent. I've seen some very significant power being moved and invited and, um, you know, just manipulated in an ayahuasca ceremony. 
So to me, there's no doubt that uh, a shaman singing an ikaro is far more powerful than a facilitator singing an ikaro. A facilitator, you know, who is uh, not trained as a shaman, but has a lot of experience and is a stable figure to head a ceremony. Um, but the facilitator may also sing ikaros, having been through so many ceremonies, having heard so many ikaros themselves, probably having practiced their own uh, performance of these songs while they're drinking alone. Um, you know, they may sing too. So that doesn't mean they're a shaman, but there is always some value to, to music, to beautiful sounds during ayahuasca ceremony. So it doesn't mean that um, just because they're not a shaman, it's not doing anything. It is still helping. Um, an experienced facilitator will know the emotion that is brought up by a certain song, having heard it so many times, having practiced it, ha having connected with it themselves in their own struggles to calm themselves down or heal themselves, right? So there is uh, a certain amount of utility that a facilitator can, can get out of an ikaro by knowing which one is appropriate at which moments, by performing it well with a well-meaning emotion, they can also affect um, some level of uh, energy manipulation in the ceremony moment. So um, just a note, a facilitator may be singing Ikaros, but that doesn't mean they're a shaman, that doesn't mean they're properly trained, that doesn't mean it's being fully imbued with the potential of, of that medicine song. But it's still something good to have, right? It's still a soothing thing to happen in a ceremony, even if it's not from a shaman. And this is where we break away from what both the shaman and facilitator share and get into now how a shaman goes beyond. Now when you're drinking in an ayahuasca ceremony, you may have a combination. It may be one shaman at the helm or many shamans of different power levels, right? Um, you may have a shaman sitting with their apprentices who are learning, who are a little beyond the role of facilitator, slowly getting into the responsibilities of the shaman. Or it could be a mix of everything, right? There may be a shaman, there may be an apprentice, there may be a couple of facilitators, or they may be just facilitators if um, the group you're drinking with doesn't have access to a shaman, especially in other countries, right, where it's a little harder to get this kind of person into a ceremony. Um, but these are all good situations. It's having these poles, these tent poles, under the big tarp of a ceremony to lift up the canopy, to create a greater, grander space, and the, the more powerful your central facilitator is, your, your central um, space holder is, the greater the potential of what can happen in that ayahuasca moment. So a shaman holding a space has a significantly larger possibility of what can happen, of what an energy work can happen, whether spirits can show up, whether all kinds of crazy deep connection to the medicine can happen. That is far more likely with a shaman sitting at the helm versus a facilitator. But whatever the combination is, um, it's always good to have at least one of these tent pole figures lifting up the tarp off of everybody, giving breathing room for the experience to flow um, more openly and um, expand the horizons of what's possible within this ceremony, even just by inspiring a sense of calm in everyone. That alone will expand the range everybody has within their experience, feeling less rigid, feeling less timid, feeling less uh, limited out of fear, out of anxiety, out of uh, feeling insecure because no, one, no one's there to watch over them, right? When you feel safe, everything opens up. Now, Let's move on into the shaman and what the shaman is uh, doing above and beyond 
just a facilitator, just a space holder. Now, the first one that comes to mind is advanced energy work. So a shaman who has properly trained with these medicines, as I described earlier, has forged a relationship with these spiritual forces, has gained an ability to channel energies around and move things around um, in a way that allows them to create very powerful moments for people in ceremony. Um, this may sound like woo-woo to, to a lot of scientific thinkers out there. I'm aware, uh, I mean, I myself used to have this perspective that it doesn't matter whether you have a shaman, a facilitator, or nobody at all. It's all hallucinations. It's all within your mind. You could drink alone, and there's no difference between drinking alone, drinking with a facilitator, drinking with a shaman. These are just psychological figures that are there to, to give you a sense of safety, and I don't need that, right? A lot of people feel that's unnecessary. But having been working here in my apprenticeship, drinking many times with Maestro Orlando, the shaman I'm working with here, I have, I've seen enough happen where I know now, I know for sure that there's a whole other level going on to this experience and to, in fact, reality, right? The reality of the spirit realm, which is this energetic other level to reality that isn't visible, but it affects everything. It's connected to everything. This is the realm that the shaman has learned to walk in, has learned to connect with, has learned to feel, to listen to, and to forge relationship with. And up there, down there, wherever the energetic spiritual realm is, the shaman has established a relationship with these conscious forces that are up there. You could call them spirits, right? There does seem to be another culture, another society, another bunch of life forms existing in the energetic realm uh, behind reality. And the shaman has become able to walk in that realm and move that realm and communicate with that realm, affect that realm uh, through experience, through forging relationship, through visiting many times, through, through um, you know, just making alliances and fighting battles. All this stuff that happens in an apprenticeship allows the shaman to now manage energy from, from a level that is beyond the physical to the average observer of an ayahuasca ceremony. Often the shaman is just sitting at the helm, singing a song once in a while, but not really doing much, right? So that's how a person can easily think, well, they're not doing anything, they're not really an important figure, they're just a decoration, right? But really, what they're doing is within their own visionary experience, within their own effects of the medicine, they are coming out of their body often, or at least sensing what's happening energetically through their visions, and through counter visions, through visions that they create, through imagination, through focus of will, through connection to these conscious spirits that they have forged a connection with, they can affect change in the space in the people drinking the medicine. They can invite the spirit of a plant, a medicine plant, to enter within another person, to do work. If they feel that person needs this plant, they can call to that plant with a song or just with their heart and say, hey, see that person over there? Uh, they need your help, so do me a favor. Why don't you go inside them and help them out? Send a spirit into you, right? That is part of the relationship that the shaman has forged with these other realms. And that allows them to do that, to ask for favors, to move energy. It may be that there is no conscious spirit there, and it's just all in the mind of the shaman, but they are connecting to a real energy 
through the idea of connecting to a spirit, right? And when they ask a spirit to enter a person, it doesn't matter if there is a consciousness or not to that spirit. What matters is the shaman is moving an energy into that person just by, by thinking about it, just by channeling their will. Um, it sounds so strange, I understand, but the more you work with these medicines, the more you understand the importance of intent, of will, of even just imagination, of imagery, of, um, of, of, of moving energy by the way you feel, by the way you think. It does move things on the energetic level. And that's what a shaman has trained in. So through these various acts of energy work, I mean, as I described, there is the medicine songs, which a shaman will not only sing, but fill with a powerful vision, fill with powerful energy, and then launch into the air at whoever it's directed at, whether it be the whole space, a specific person, inviting an energy into the room, creating a protection. There's all sorts of things that a shaman is doing, um, managing all these different levels of the experience, um, through these songs, which are intended to do this or that task. They're channeling forces, right? They're moving energies out of people, into people, moving things away from the space, bringing things into the space. There's so much going on on this other level that, that most people have no idea is going on. Now, another thing that a shaman can do, which a facilitator can't, is um, control the mariación, the effect of, of the ayahuasca, the intensity of the medicine, um, a shaman who has trained and connected with this medicine enough can actually lower someone's drunkenness, someone's intensity of effect if it's too much for them, right? If they really need it to stop. I've seen this myself. Maestro Orlando has pulled tobacco smoke out of a, of a cigarette and blown it on a person and stopped it cold. <laughs> no more effect. You know, uh, sometimes people have trouble sleeping for hours after ayahuasca. And in one of those cases, Maestro came around, said, you're having trouble sleeping? Uh, well, let me finally help you out. It's been long enough. Took a drag of his uh, mapacho, his um, tobacco joint, blew it on the guy's face, and the guy went to sleep. Minutes later, the effect stopped that he was struggling with for hours, you know? So a shaman can lower or completely cut off somebody's ayahuasca effect if it's an emergency or if it really is time for it to stop, right? Whereas a facilitator will only be able to keep you calm, assure you that you're okay, you know, and everything is going to calm down eventually, but for now we got to write it out together, right? Um, but they can't stop it like that. They don't have that degree of control over the medicine. A shaman does. Another thing a shaman can do is help to force a purge. So ayahuasca, yes, is a medicine that makes people vomit. And a lot of times, people are struggling with that. They want to vomit. They feel they need to vomit. But they're holding themselves back. They can't release into that moment. Now, it can be an important healing in itself to yourself reach that place of, of release, right? Of allowing the, the purge to come. So sometimes the shaman will not interact, will not interrupt a person struggling with the, the need to vomit, trying to release, because releasing into that natural process, reaching that threshold of, man, just let it go, let the medicine do its thing, vomit, right? That can be a very healing moment. And to force a person to, to, to vomit, as a shaman can do, could rob them of that moment. So sometimes they'll wait, 
But sometimes a person really actually needs to let something out and they can't let themselves go and it will be more important for them to get it out than to release into it this day. So in that case, the shaman may sing a song, the shaman may blow some energy over or do whatever method this particular shaman uses, but can force a person to purge. And often the person will be aware that the shaman just did that for them. They may see the shaman in a vision arrive at their side and give them a slap on the back or something, right? Or they may feel the energy of the shaman reach into their stomach and pull the vomit out, which finally lets the vomit out, right? But often the person will have some level of awareness that the purge didn't come from their own release. It came with the help of a song or the energy of the shaman. And often there'll be this gratitude right afterwards, after vomiting of, oh, God, thank you. I was struggling with that. You know, I feel so much better now. Thank God you were there. That is something that a shaman can do, once again, that a facilitator really can't. Um, they can try and help you work through it, right? But they can't make it happen. Shamans can make things happen in a ceremony through energy. That's the big difference. They have direct control on things in a way that a facilitator doesn't. Another thing that the shaman can do is set boundaries um, on, on the range of what can happen in this space, the range of how far people can explore outwards into the spiritual realm, because sometimes people do also leave their bodies. Not just shamans do that, but people often end up leaving their bodies and exploring the spirit realms in their ayahuasca ceremony. And if they wander into you know dangerous territory, that's no good. That could create a situation. So the shaman can also set limits for people. And this becomes important when the shaman is present because, you know, their very presence expands the boundaries of everyone's reach. So while their presence expands the moment, they also need to be there to manage, you know, gates, put in fences to keep people from going too far into this potential the shaman brings. Another thing that a shaman is responsible for is counterbalancing extreme shifts in energy in the moment. Um, it's as if everyone is sitting on a raft together and it's a really unstable raft, you know, it could tip over and all these people having their ceremonies are moving all over the place on this raft, making really extreme movements and changing position and jumping up and down and dancing, you know, there's all this energy randomness happening and all the people drinking in ceremony. And the shaman is standing on this raft and has to counterbalance. So knowing, having a feeling of whether things are tipping over this way or things are getting too far that way, the shaman knows to position themselves in an opposite way that will restabilize things. So that comes with a very high degree of energy sensitivity and energy awareness. And if they didn't have that, things could get out of hands. Things could tip over, so to speak. Um, throwing the ceremony into some kind of chaos, bringing up a lot of negativity and, and just breaking the delicate, delicate energy of a good ayahuasca ceremony. A good ayahuasca ceremony with a good, powerful shaman at the helm tends to be extremely peaceful and still. It's not this bunch of fireworks going off. Everybody is having these amazing journeys internally, but the moment is still. There is no chaos. There is no crazy waves of energy coming through the space. It's still. And that's because the shaman is managing the moment, right? Making sure that nothing crazy happens. So, so everyone has a good, stable platform on which to work their deep and extreme personal journeys, right? 
that's another thing that a shaman brings to the table that a facilitator really can't. A facilitator will have to deal with things when they pop up, but they can't feel things going awry before they happen, right? They're dealing purely with the physical reality of the moment and aren't so much connected to the energetic reality that comes before the moment, that builds over time and can end up creating a physical moment, right? The shaman is on top of things before they even come to pass, keeping things as stable as possible, keeping everything going smoothly. Another thing that a shaman has, which a facilitator doesn't, is some degree of psychic connection um, to everybody in the space. Now, a lot of people drinking ayahuasca together will have a sense at some point of psychicness, of feeling something someone else is doing or thinking or catching a glimpse of someone else's visions, opening their eyes and looking across the space at someone else and seeing a shaft of green light coming out of the, the roof, shining on a person across the space while this person is having this deep, intense experience, right? Um, people can see through visual hallucinations, through inner visions, through feeling emotions, they can glimpse other people's moments in an ayahuasca shared ceremony. Um, you get glimpses of it. I've been getting it myself as I'm training up. But a shaman, uh, as Maestro Orlando tells me um, in his case, he sees everybody's visions through the whole ceremony. He's watching what's happening for everyone. I don't even know how psychologically you process that, seeing many people's experiences at the same time, you know? But um, he claims this is what happens, and he's able to see when someone is going unstable or venturing into a, a dark space that he can help nudge them away from. And with the energy work that they do, the shaman can you know, push things into a better direction if they're going wrong or see that someone's having a really, really dark vision and they might need some light, uh, you know, a spirit of light to help them out and they'll send that spirit in, right? Um, there's all this monitoring going on invisibly, psychically, as crazy as it sounds. A lot of this stuff sounds crazy when it comes to ayahuasca and spirits and energy work, but as I keep saying, I've seen enough so far to know. Uh, so that's another role that the shaman is doing, monitoring everybody on um, a visionary level and um, making sure their journeys are going productively. Another thing, importantly, that a shaman will be uh, tasked with in an ayahuasca ceremony is to make diagnosis, right? So when you drink with someone like Maestro Orlando, he's analyzing you. He's analyzing everybody in the space while we're all in this shared moment together, very open very transparent to the eyes of the shaman, he will look into your life, into your body, into your, your energy, into your soul, and see where there are blockages, where there are knots, where there is illness, where there's corruption, where there is something to be addressed, right? Um, they see you as a map, and they see the problems in a very high-level way that um, even the person themselves often can't see. Um, and they'll be able to deliver prescription either for which plants, which medicinal plants would be helpful for your own healing and your own growth. Um, if you're in a dieta, for example, Maestro Orlando will determine this the first night, have a look at everybody and figure out which medicine is appropriate for this week or these two weeks, whatever time it may be for this dieta. But also a shaman can deliver what I call keystone messages. So this will happen sometimes in conversation the next day. It may happen in that very ceremony if the shaman calls people one at a time to sit up with him and have a little chat, blow a little tobacco, give a little advice, right? 
um, a lot of times these keystone messages that a shaman delivers are things that you need to hear, are things that sometimes spirit wants you to hear. It's not even about the shaman's opinion, it's just the shaman was told to deliver this, right? So sometimes it may not make sense in the moment. Sometimes it may seem like useless advice or incorrect or, you know, strange. Um, but if you sit with it for a while, especially if you're in a dieta sort of situation where you're working with the medicine for a long time, um, eventually there'll be a moment where you realize the shaman was correct. What they said, what they delivered was useful. Even just processing what they said sometimes will lead to a moment that is extremely helpful, extremely healing, extremely elevating, um, just by working with the strange thing the shaman said, right? But usually it's a diagnosis. Usually it's an advice about life, about something about yourself. You know, you don't love yourself enough or... Um, you know, you need to look into your childhood. There's something in your childhood. Um, my previous dieta, Maestro gave me a really frustrating one. He said, there's something. I was having trouble connecting with the medicine. He told me, there's something. And I had to sit with that for the whole week, <laughs> trying to figure out, oh God, what is it? You know, is it illness? Is it, uh, you know, are the spirits mad at me? You know, I just, I had to work with all of this vagueness. There's something. But in the end, it turned out to be, helpful as always. Um, I found what the something was and uh, there was my solution. But he was right, there was something. Um, he didn't tell me on purpose, he specifically didn't tell me what it was this time because I had to search. Um, but that, that message, there's something, gave me the constant direction to keep searching the problem, right? Um, so a shaman will deliver prescription, uh, advice, Sometimes just vague sentences that don't mean anything in the moment, but it's always worthy to give it some attention, to work with it for a while, and usually it'll break through into an effect. There is a certain amount of almost time travel vision that I've often seen shamans have where they may do something that in the moment seems strange, but later on leads everything to an important moment. So... Um, I get the sense that oftentimes a shaman is aware how something done in the moment will affect the future. And they're not really trying to affect you now. They're looking forward and almost like hitting a pool ball, right? They're, they're lining up the angle and hitting you, knowing which way it's going to send you to get you into a pocket, right? Into a corner pocket or whatever. Um, there is this kind of forward vision that uh, a good, well-trained shaman will often have. Now... Within ceremony, within the ayahuasca experience, as I touched on a bit earlier, a shaman such as Maestro Orlando can astral project, comes out of their body into the spirit realm, entering the spirit world, able to navigate within that other consciousness and explore and manipulate this other realm. And as I've described, they can use that um, mobility, that lucidness in that level, to invite and manage spirits, to build relationships and, and keep gaining allies in the spirit world, keep growing their power, keep meeting new medicine plants, etc. Um, but they can also touch and move idea objects. Now, this is a little difficult to explain if you've never explored, you know, these spiritual concepts, but ideas, right? Um, something like a thought complex, right? Let's say you've got trauma and you're holding on to it for many years, right? That trauma, say it was a betrayal, right? Maybe it was a betrayal by somebody in the past that really hurt you and has been affecting your life ever since. 
oftentimes that will take the form on the spiritual level of an object that's in your system somewhere. So in my own personal case, I had a back full of knives, daggers, all in my back. And not all of them were daggers that had been placed there by other people. Some of them were daggers that I was holding with someone's name on it. In case they attacked me, I had it on my back, ready to pull out and pull on them, right? So these are, these are thoughts, right? These are thoughts that are always in the back of your mind, but for some reason, on the idea realm, on the spiritual level, they can concrete into spirit objects. So these daggers, analogy daggers that I just described, I encountered them in my back as daggers that were there. And I'm certain when Maestro Orlando was drinking and having a look at me, he could see those knives in my back also on the idea level, on, on the uh, spiritual realm. Didn't touch them because they were mine to discover, mine to heal. As a person training, uh, he doesn't help me as much as he might be able to because I need to learn. But um, that's all to describe the concept of, of, of idea complexes manifesting as objects in the idea realm, in the spirit world. And shamans can move these things, they can touch them. So if they do see someone with a bunch of knives in their back, they can pull them out for the person, right? And the effect that the person will have, will not to perceive that that happens, but to all of a sudden have an understanding about this complex they were holding on to, and wow, I had no idea I was holding on to this anger about this person, or oh yeah, I remember that betrayal I felt about this other person, and it'll just be a moment where it all resolves, right? And they'll have no idea, is because the spirit of the shaman reached over and pulled the thought object out of them, which removed the complex, which was live within them, right? In their energy, in their minds. Um, so I'm trying to describe that sickness, that complexes, that personal demons and all that stuff, in the spiritual realm, they exist as, as, as objects that the shaman can interact with. And that's how the shaman can operate a lot of energetic healing. Um, the shaman also has a bunch of spiritual objects that they can keep. When they pull a knife out of you, they can keep it and either have it as a defense of their own or use it to attack an enemy later if someone's trying to you know, destroy them, as these battles often happen. They may use it against a demon if they're trying to defeat a demon for someone and this weapon becomes appropriate. Or they may disintegrate it, right? Um, this is all just idea stuff, but there is some strange concrete reality to it. And um, with all these tools that a shaman has either encountered and collected and sometimes even crafted themselves, been gifted by the spirits, um, with all of these tools at their disposal, the shaman can affect healing. Um, if they're a, a bad shaman, it can affect you know, negativity with, uh, with these tools. Um, but it is an important factor of what a shaman is doing in the spirit realm, seeing and manipulating idea objects. Uh, they've also been called thought forms. So I just briefly touched on battling in the spiritual level, right? So a shaman, if a person is coming in with personal demons, or if a person's um, unwellness is from external negative energy that is attached to them or attacking them from someone else, you know, there's all this other spiritual reality going on to things. The shaman can battle on behalf of this person 
on the spirit level, against the illness, against the negative influences, against the personal demon, if they choose to do that, if it is appropriate to do that, a shaman can be doing that for you, and you've got no idea that it's happening, right? You just get the results, you just find out that you feel better the next day, that you had a vision where you defeated it, and you had no idea that the shaman was there helping you. So that's another thing that a shaman is bringing to the table. And finally, in this um, spirit realm access that a shaman has, they can also affect a kind of healing known as soul retrieval. So there is a notion here in the South American medicine cultures that when a person suffers a trauma, when a person suffers a fear, I mean, for example, if you're in a car accident, right, and you have this moment of, oh my God, I'm going to die, right, and you have this traumatic car accident, you survive, but afterwards you have a trauma lingering, right? You have this anxiety that suddenly is there, or you feel depression that you've never felt before, or, you know, there, there's all these lingering after effects that can happen after a, a trauma. It could be abuse from a loved one, it could be a betrayal, it could be heartbreak, you know? But in life, the theory down here is when you suffer a, an experience that makes you not want to be here, that makes your, your spirit um, reject reality, right? In a moment of shock, of I don't like this, I don't want to be here, this sucks, right? There's a part of your soul that actually leaves your body, your 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 presence. It it goes into the spirit realm, somewhere far away to hide. And it never really comes back unless you are able to come to terms with the moment and call it back to yourself, right? Regain your lost piece of soul. Or the shaman in his spirit realm access can see that you have suffered this kind of injury and go looking for your soul and find it and invite it back into you which again would manifest in the person just as a resolution of the trauma so a lot of this PTSD recovery that people describe um, encountering within psychedelic experience such as ayahuasca or mushrooms and whatnot it can either be soul retrieval earned by the person themselves, by facing the issue, by readdressing the issue, by reframing it, by digesting it in a more um, fruitful way that calls the soul back into themselves. Or in the hands of a shaman, the shaman can just do it for you and go find the soul, bring it back, in which case things will be resolved. Um, just, just from feeling better. I feel more whole. I felt like I was lost and now I feel so clear. I don't know why, right? The shaman went and got your lost piece of soul and put it back inside you. Or at least that's what they say, right? But do you see how I just basically described post-traumatic stress using another language? To me, I view it as just another way to explain what post-traumatic stress is. I've had post-traumatic stress. I have dealt with, you know, uh, spiritual injuries like this, psychological injuries. And isn't it true that when you are suffering some kind of PTSD, there is a sense of not being connected to reality as much, right? There is a sense of some part of me is deep inside, hiding, right? And that's soul loss. That's, that's, they're just describing the effect in a different way, in a different um, a view of the world, right? Instead of viewing it as purely psychological defense mechanisms, yes, I sealed part of myself away because reality has become very difficult to deal with and I need to protect myself, so it's a defense mechanism, right? There's a psychological way of looking at it, but it could just as easily be that when you do that, energetically, 
spiritually, a part of you is going far away. It feels far away because it is far away. It's gone. Part of you isn't here anymore. It's somewhere else, and you're disconnected from it, and you feel less whole. You feel less awake. You feel less connected to the moment because you're not all here, right? So to me, it does make sense to say that um, these kinds of traumas are a kind of soul loss because a part of you does leave and needs to be brought back, whether it be through your own work or through the help energetically of a shaman. But if you listen to the shaman, that's what they'll say is happening. I go up into the energy realm. I see that a person is missing part of their soul. I go and I find it and I bring it back and they feel better. So to me, I give it the benefit of the doubt because I've seen so much so far. And so much of working with a shaman, especially as a Westerner, so much of that relationship um, is improved when you stop being smug about, oh yeah, you say that, okay, you know, yeah, okay, spirits, souls, yeah, energy work, blah, 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 all right there, shaman, right, I'm a scientist, I'm from a big city, I know better than you, right, there's this ego clash that can happen, and anyone that's going to work with these medicines will benefit from releasing that, that ego, and accepting that you are entering, you're not just going to this person to be given ayahuasca, and, and say, thanks, sucker, you know, thanks for the ayahuasca. You do your thing over there. I'm here and I know better, and I'm going to just deal with the experience. I'm just here for you to give me this tea. If you're going into these experiences, the right way to come with respect is to at least be open to what they're telling you is happening and what they're telling you the reality is because you're here for the whole thing. You're coming not just to drink this specific mix of plants you're here to work in this other way of understanding reality and um of, of attempting healing and improvement of yourself right so if you're coming in with this rejection of what they say um with this superiority about yeah that's your view but i don't believe it um that somewhat limits you and creates a, a tension in the relationship between you and the shaman it's more respectful to come with an open mind and to say, well, that's interesting that you're saying that and you're saying this is how things are and this is what happened last night and, you know, um, and work with it that way and see if I find any truth in it. Um, that's just a little piece of advice there because I know a lot of people come from the West with this sort of superiority, this sort of I know better scientific attitude that uh, doesn't necessarily break anything that's happening here when they come to drink ayahuasca it doesn't prevent them from being healed but it does make you kind of like an asshole coming here receiving all of this spiritual work from a shaman while at the same time telling them you don't believe in anything they're doing you know what i mean um, it's fine to be skeptical but have a little respect have a little understanding that you're coming to a specialist in a in a in a, in a realm you have no idea about you know, it's like hiring somebody and then telling them how to do their work and telling them they're doing it wrong when they're an expert and you're not. You know what I mean? Um, it's just something to be aware of. So that more or less describes uh, all of the various tasks and responsibilities and abilities of a shaman versus just a facilitator. And to wrap it up in a really simple nutshell for you, um, when you're drinking ayahuasca with facilitators, 
you are in a safe space. You know, if they're a good facilitator, they are granting a, a safe moment for everybody to explore and drink and do their personal work together under the watch of an experienced eye that knows how to handle problems that come up, right? The word facilitator comes from the Spanish word facile, right? Or in French, facile, which both mean ease, right? They make the experience easier for everyone involved. They are there to assist in the task of working with the medicine. They are there to grant a certain level of safety and stability to a ceremony. Now, when you're drinking with a shaman, you're drinking with a specialist, right? This is um, not just drinking medicine and doing your own personal work, but you're doing it with a healer there who has all of the tools I've described and even more to affect help, direct help, direct interaction with your experience, with the energies, with the spirits, with the medicine that they manage, um, which jacks things up, you know, to a whole other level. So that's the difference. Um, they're both fine ways to drink. Everyone makes their own choice about what they're looking for, but that's the difference. Drinking with assistance, with a watchful eye, versus drinking with um, a specialist, a healer, an actual healer that can affect a very powerful healing. And with a shaman at the helm, what can happen in an ayahuasca ceremony could be downright miraculous. So that's the difference. Um, either way, you're drinking ayahuasca, either way, the, the plant medicine will do its best to help you work through whatever it is you're working through, to explore whatever it is you're exploring. But drinking with facilitators versus drinking with trained shamans is a whole different ballgame. There are different options out there, and it's up to the individual to figure out what they need, what they're interested in, what they want. And even if a facilitator has drank hundreds of times with ayahuasca, it's irresponsible and inaccurate if they try to represent themselves as a healer, as a shaman, as a curandero, if they haven't been through the training, if they haven't forged these relationships with spirit, um, haven't um, gained this mobility in the spirit realm and the ability to manage and sense energy to a level that a shaman can. Uh, there's a lot of facilitators out there that get egotistical and try to represent themselves as something better than they are to try and you know bring people in, to try and draw clients or, or gain prestige, but really um, to become a shaman, you first have to have the potential within you and secondly have to have done years, years of work, not just drinking ayahuasca, but dieting many different plants, forging connection with all these different energies and, and, and not only that, but cleaning yourself up so that you become able to work with these energies without being all mucked up with your own junk. So it's self-healing before anything else, but then beyond that, uh, experience and forging relationship with these forces that seem to be there in this other realm once you get out of yourself, once you get out of your own junk and start to be able to explore this other realm and, and make relationship with what's out there. Now one last thing I need to mention since I am discussing the shaman here is for anybody that will be working with a shaman, uh, be it in, in South America or locally, wherever they find them, one thing to keep in mind, at least when it comes to the South American culture of uh, healers and shamanism, is to manage your expectation of, of how this person will be in everyday life. See, in the West, we have this tendency to expect that a spiritual person needs to behave a certain way in everyday life, right? Um, 
it's like maintaining an act. We, we get this mostly from, you know, Catholicism and the priesthood and all of that stuff. Um, these are figures that seem to always try to maintain this air of, you know, great spirituality. And um, it's like they're not really normal humans. They're behaving like they're, they're somehow elevated or something like that, you know, but that's an act. The truth is, uh, in South America, being a healer, being a plant healer, it's more, it is a lifelong dedicated thing, but it's, it's more like a job, right? It's like, it's like being a doctor. Um, and it's not fair for so someone to come in and expect this person to maintain an act for the benefit of um, the patient, right? To always, 24-7, maintain this, oh, I am so spiritual, uh, I have no faults, you know, I'm enlightened. Um, that's a game that people expect a spiritual healer to to play for them. It's a role that we expect people to, to fall in line with. But the fact is, you know, South American shamans, they're just people, and a lot of them grew up in little villages where you can't really keep an act up like that. Everybody knows everybody's business. Everyone knows that everyone is human. And in fact, if you try to act high and mighty, you're going to end up rejected by the society. You're going to end up sort of uh, attacked by everybody to bring you back down, right? So uh, all of the great healers I've met in my life, all of the, the shamans I know so far, um, they're just people. You know, they're down-to-earth, regular people. And when they're not in ceremony, when they're not within the um, context of medicinal work, they're just people. They've got faults. They've got failings. They've got things they still need to work on as humans. You know, um, what I'm trying to express here <clears throat> is don't expect a shaman to behave like, like some kind of otherworldly being that is just temporarily here on earth or something like that, right? This, this guru mentality we have where, you know, this person is flawless, this person can do no wrong, this person has no faults, because you will be disappointed if you spend any amount of time with these people. Now, in the context of an ayahuasca retreat where patients come in and will spend a week or two at the place and then leave, you know, you can maintain that illusion. Uh, you can choose as, as the person visiting to maintain that illusion. And a lot of times the shaman will almost accommodate that by being very distant, by showing up for ceremony, by showing up whenever they're needed. But the rest of the time, they're usually gone. They're out of the way. And part of that is calculated. It's to prevent providing that disappointment because they know that a lot of people coming from the West come with this expectation of, uh, of the shaman behaving larger than life or, or being flawless and, 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 and this never-ending example of how to be. But like I said, if you do end up socializing with them or being with them outside of the, the, the medicine work context, it can be a rude awakening sometimes, you know? Um, but, you know, a shaman is a person. A shaman wants to live, have the pleasures of life. You may have a shaman that uh, on the off days might get drunk once in a while, right? And when you see that, you might think, hey, aren't you supposed to be this like elevated spiritual being? What are you doing getting drunk like a lowly human? Well, nobody wants to be on the job 24-7. Everyone needs to unwind. Everybody needs to, you know, just just be human. And especially for someone like a shaman who who is always in these depths of spirituality, it could be a nice break for them to purposely just be human and flawed once in a while, right? Um, I mean, any good healer out there, 
any real spiritual healer out there understands that pretense is a bad idea to to allow yourself to fall into this idea that you need to be this elevated person for the benefit of everyone else's illusion that that is not true it's not the truth and the truth is what's healing real healers work with truth and and appreciate that they don't have to play any games for anybody as long as they do their work well when it's time to do the work and as long as they're serious when it's time to be serious the rest of the time they're usually pretty light-hearted joking kind of corny people sometimes you know um so the point i'm trying to get at i'm sure you're understanding is um in coming to work with a shaman there is a lot to respect there there is a lot to look up to and yes they have seen things and they do have an awareness of reality and you know these these sort of powers i've described within the context of medicine work that uh, seem superhuman but they're always human and it's especially important for these kinds of people to be able to come back to the grounds once in a while and and return to being human um, that's like an anchor that everyone needs to hold on to. Not only the shaman, but people doing ayahuasca work on themselves too. It's important to come back to to tiny humanity and um, remembering that you're just a human, you know, uh, despite all these great spiritual truths you may discover, besides, besides all these enlightening moments you find, at the end of the day, you still have to find a way to come back to Earth and live with that knowledge and find a way to improve your life and improve the life of others with the knowledge that you you have gained but to try and maintain it all the time um it's 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 a fantasy and um it's an exercise it's a wasted exercise that always ends up failing because the truth always ends up winning in the end so trying to put on an act for the benefit of uh of people's expectations most you know real shamans understand that that's pointless and there is a certain amount of um as i said allowing that to happen for uh, the inspirational value that that could have for someone else but um that doesn't stick if you start to really get to know any particular shaman you'll start to see little foibles and little faults here and there and think to yourself get into judgment and think hey shouldn't you be above this behavior or shouldn't you be above what you just did or things like that uh but no they're not above it they're they're human you know um and these like i said these these amazing abilities that they have also aren't switched on 24/7 necessarily um i once had a client at the center who was critical of maestro orlando uh because in the night uh he had walked over to maestro orlando's room while maestro orlando was asleep to ask for a little more ayahuasca and this client had been waiting outside of Maestro Orlando's bedroom for 10-15 minutes um afraid to wake him right uh, out of respect but at the same time he took that moment in judgment as well because he was thinking hey aren't you supposed to be psychic aren't you supposed to be plugged into what's going on why don't you know that i'm standing outside your room waiting for you right um but nobody ever said that someone like Maestro Orlando is psychic 24/7 the guy was sleeping the guy was on break you know what i mean um possibly journeying far in the spirit realms in his dreams as he does uh and not aware that there was someone at his door because it wasn't this emergency important thing to know about right and if if uh the client needed him all he had to do was knock on the wall wake him up right but that just goes to show it's a small example of the kind of expectation you need to manage um a lot of a lot of expectation gets pinned onto shamans there's a lot of pressure that westerners put on them 
Um, and a lot of times a Westerner could fall into judgment because the shaman didn't meet an expectation that he never made a promise to meet, right? You need to manage your expectation coming in. These are very respectable, uh, very skilled people with a connection to something really deep and powerful and mystical and miraculous, but they're people, right? Just please remember that if you are going to visit a shaman anywhere or work with a shaman anywhere, there's a lot to respect there, there is a lot to look up to, but you can't allow yourself to fall into judgment against them if they, they, they fail to meet some superhuman standard you're assigning them. Uh, I think I'm going to wrap it up here, fellow human. Hopefully that gives you an idea in making your choice uh, if you're out there looking for ayahuasca, um, whether you just want facilitation, whether you want to drink with a shaman. Hopefully it's been helpful. And of course, if you are looking for an ayahuasca retreat, an ayahuasca experience out there, I am personally apprenticing at the center with Maestro Orlando over here in Peru. We're based out of Tarapoto, a small town up in the jungle. Um, we've got a beautiful camp where we do dietas, exclusively dietas, which is you know week-long cycles, can be multiple weeks if you wish, um, but at least one week, uh, drinking ayahuasca every second day, more or less, and also drinking other medicine plants. Um, you get translation from me, you get guidance from me. I am, before anything else, a friend along the path. So even if you come alone, uh, you've got a friend waiting here, ready to work through ayahuasca with you, with uh, whatever comes up for you, whatever knots, whatever challenges, we got you. So if that sounds interesting to you, you could check out all the information about our place, about our service, over at uh, viaverdetours.com. Or to make it easier, you could just head over to higherideas.net and the link is right there at the top. Big green planty link for Via Verde Ayahuasca. So I'll look forward to hearing from you. Uh, we're here all year long. We're just waiting for you to show up. And of course, you can always find this podcast as well over at higherideas.net where I invite you to explore all the content. Down at the bottom of that very same site, you will find a link to my Facebook where I invite you to join me as a friend to keep posted on any new episode updates or extra content or stories I want to share. And at the very top of higherideas.net, there is also a link to my Patreon support funds. I am financially struggling very much while I wait for a good flow of clients to show up for Via Verde. Um, if you guys would like to save my bacon, help save my bacon over here, keep the dream alive, as it were, please do click that little orange Patreon link and uh, choose to donate whatever amount you want to donate um, every month. can be $1, can be $5, can be $10. We're not quite at the basic monthly survival goal I've set, but we're close, so please do help out. So, fellow human, hopefully it's been helpful on your path, uh, either going to meet or working with ayahuasca, shamans, facilitators, ceremony, spirits, medicine, healing, all that good stuff. So that's it for this one, fellow human. And until next time, keep thinking.